Among the many signs of the COVID-19 pandemic's profound impact on daily life worldwide was the sound of the adhan, the call to prayer familiar across the Muslim world that normally calls the faithful to pray in mosques, instead telling them to pray in their homes or wherever they were. In this episode, we discuss a fascinating new study on the impact of the pandemic on religious behavior in Muslim-majority countries. Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. And I'm Harry Bastramaji. We're excited to be joined by three political scientists to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on religiosity in the Muslim world. Our guests are Tariq Masood, faculty director of the Prince Adwadid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University, professor of public policy, and Sultan Qaboos bin Saeed of Oman, Professor of International Relations at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, Qadir Yildirim, Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and Peter Mandeville, Professor of International Affairs at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So to start off, Maybe you could tell us a bit about this project and what made you interested in this research. I'll just start us off. Th- thanks very much, uh, Mariam, for that. So, you know, political scientists have long studied religion. I mean, we sometimes say that we haven't paid enough attention to religion, but we actually do uh, uh, pay attention to religion, but it's religion as an independent variable. So as something that explains something else that we're really interested in. So we'll say, for example, you know, how important is religiosity and religious attachment to voting behavior or to support for democracy or to violent behavior? And what I think, you know, Qadir and Peter and I have long felt is that actually religion and religious attachment and religious practice is something worthy of explanation in itself. It should not just be the independent variable, it should be the dependent variable. And this group, the three of us got together because Qadr uh, led a really innovative, loose funded project uh, a couple of years ago uh, on religious authority in the Muslim world that also was based on conducting large scale surveys in the Muslim world to try to understand how Muslims conceive of their faith and of who has authority over their faith. And so when the coronavirus pandemic hit, we had already been involved in a a conversation, the three of us, about how do we deepen and further this agenda of explaining where religion and religiosity and religious attachments come from. And when corona hit, it was an opportunity for us to really explore and test one of the few really powerful hypotheses that exist in the literature about where religiosity comes from. 
and this is a hypothesis that you would read in Marx, you would read it in Freud, you'd read it in Emil Durkheim and a lot of other scholars who basically would make the argument that religion serves as a bomb against bad luck and uh, quote unquote adverse life events. And so, you know, I think, um, um, you know, a kind of uh, a soothing, uh, a soothing balm against misery and misfortune. And so there's no greater misfortune than we could think of, at least in our time, than the pandemic and the associated economic and health effects and loss of life. And so we thought it was an opportunity for us to really see if there was a change in people's attachment to religion and their religious behaviors as a result of this shock. There were a bunch of other questions that we wanted to ask, and maybe Peter and Qadr can chime in on those. Yeah, so I think that in addition to these kind of weighty social scientific questions about the relationship between um, insecurity and religion, as regular observers of the Muslim world, we all began to notice all sorts of interesting discussions and debates popping up. You know, obviously the pandemic uh, initially hit on the eve of Ramadan. And so we immediately started to see debates, for example, about whether Tarawih and other congregational prayers count if they're performed through a virtual medium, for example, we began to see incidences of increased tension and new kinds of politics breaking out between state authorities and religious authorities in certain countries about access to and whether religious institutions should be open during this period. So there, you know, there are all kinds of questions that we thought we would that would be interesting for us to look into. And also from a comparative perspective, you know, we see a lot of studies um, going on about how. Christians of different, you know, um, um, convictions um, are uh, being affected by the pandemic, you know, how that affects their church attendance um, or different kinds of practices. So, and, and the Muslim world in this regard sort of lags in terms of the studies that focus on that. So this will provide, you know, our study provides a good sort of comparative um, baseline to see, um, you know, people under different religious contexts respond to the pandemic's effects in similar ways. Thank you for that. I mean, so, you know, you, you've sort of touched on this, but if I we could go a little deeper into the methodology, um, you know, uh, Kadra, you just mentioned the, in terms of comparative studies, there, there have been studies looking into sort of Christian communities. So can you tell us how maybe that has uh, influenced your methodology and uh, in the study of Muslim communities, or if there's anything different there? Right, sure. Um, so to explore whether the pandemic shapes religiosity or affects religious practice in the Muslim majority um, countries, we uh, commissioned an online survey um, through YouGov in November, December uh, of 2020, uh, with more than 9,000 adults in um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, um, Turkey, Pakistan, and Indonesia. Um, about 2,000 from each country except Pakistan, where we had about uh, 1,200 respondents. Um, the sample was 50% female, and the average age of respondents was um, 31 years old, females um, around 30, males a little over um, 32. Uh, and I want to acknowledge at this point the Loose Foundation's uh, support for our research, which was very important, and um, they were quick to respond to our um, um, request. So uh, we were interested in seeing uh, how citizens of these five countries uh, would respond to our questions 
And we uh, wanted to make sure the respondents were um, self-proclaimed Muslims. Um, and um, we uh, relied on YouGov's um, online survey panels in these countries, in these five countries. Uh, given the pandemic and the challenges involved in conducting field research, I think, uh, especially in some of these countries, an online survey offered us the best, best path forward. While our primary interest lies in identifying individual level of religious responses um, to the pandemic in the Muslim world, um, we recognize that individual responses are um, sort of in, are placed within country level um, you know, um, differences. And that's why it was important for us to select countries cases that would reflect the variation uh, within the Muslim world. So in that regard, uh, we looked into state capacity, for example. We reasoned that states with higher capacity would uh, enjoy greater trust from their societies and would be less likely to lead citizens to alternative sources of protection from the pandemic, such as the religion. Uh, and by contrast, states with lower capacity would rely more on religion um, to address these kinds of um, relief. And we have a good, I think, variation between um, Turkey on the one hand and Pakistan at the other end in terms of state capacity. Another factor that we looked into is uh, whether electoral accountability uh, would play into this uh, because we reasoned that in countries where um, democracy, electoral accountability was a factor, um, governments, governments might be more responsible to, to, the, to the pandemic. And that's why uh, people's recourse to religion and different kinds of religiosity would be lessened as a result. So, and in that sense, I think we, we, we again have a good bit of variation, you know, Pakistan um, and Saudi Arabia, you know, offering a lot of, um, I'm sorry, Indonesia um, offering the um, highest level of electoral accountability within our cases and Saudi Arabia being the least among, among um, the five countries. Uh, government's relation with religion um, is another factor right, that we took into account. You know, to what extent does the government um, control religion um, or control religious practice within the country? In some cases, uh, it's a complete uh, free market, such as Pakistan, for example. But in other cases, the government is really heavy-handed uh, in what goes into the religious space, whether this is in the case of Saudi Arabia or in the case of Turkey where all the mosques are controlled by the state and all the Friday sermons, for example, are centrally um, dictated. And, and the last factor we wanted to consider was um, the study that Tarek mentioned, you know, the 2017 study that we conducted where Tarek was part of the project uh, on religious authority in the Middle East. So we wanted to make sure we had at least some countries from that study carrying over to this one uh, to ensure that we had some sort of a baseline that we could compare um, the, the questions of religiosity on at least some questions over time. Yeah. You know, just to chime in on, on the methodological point, so Qadr offered uh, the logic of case selection, you know, that why did we choose these countries and not some other countries? And it's because those cases gave us some variation on some of these important factors that we think might explain the outcomes. You know, if, if we could do the kind of gold standard study, what we would have done was 
some an experiment where you randomly assign some people to experience a pandemic and other people not to experience a pandemic. And the people are not experiencing the pandemic as the control group. And then we'll measure their level of religiosity and other things that we're interested in for the control group that got no pandemic and the treatment group that got pandemic. And we see if there's a difference. Of course, you can't do that. This is what we would call an observational study. And it obviously has some, uh, some shortcomings. But I do think part of why the multi-country nature of the study is valuable is that the intensity of the pandemic is also not the same across uh, all countries. And in fact, the intensity of the experience of the pandemic is not the same again, uh, across all respondents. You know, Some respondents, pandemic really hit them hard. People in their family got sick, lost jobs, et cetera. Other people didn't experience that. So we're trying to leverage some of that variation to make a claim that you really can only make with an experimental study, but obviously that methodology is out of uh, out of our reach for something like this. You know, and insofar as this is maybe a bit of an opportunity to make a pitch for other kinds of research we might want to do, <clears throat> listen up foundations, please. Um, it would be great to look at some of these questions in the context of Muslim minority settings, right? Obviously here we've got several of the largest Muslim majority, most populous Muslim majority countries in the world. Um, it would be interesting to know whether we see different dynamics emerging in settings where Muslim communities are in the minority. I, you know, I would love to run a version of this with an oversample of Muslims in the United States or Western Europe, for example. Yeah, that would be awesome, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so just going a little further, maybe on that, the, the point about the, the intensity of the pandemic, or maybe the intensity of feeling around the pandemic, that's really interesting to me. I mean, how, first of all, what goes into that feeling? What goes into the feeling of intensity? <laughs> uh, you know, is it is it economic? Um, uh, you know, are we talking about emotional distress, uh, um, from economic distress, uh, from health uh, issues. Uh, and how do you measure that? that? That's great, Harry. Basically, what we tried to do is the following. Um, in order to measure the level of strain and discomfort and distress that people felt, we used a battery of questions that was actually deployed by the US Census in their COVID-19 pulse survey, which asked respondents, how often during the prior seven days had you felt nervous, worried, apathetic, depressed? I mean, the, the wording is, is a little bit different what, than what I gave you, but those are the ideas. And so we use that to measure, I mean, assuming, of course, that people are being open about how they're feeling, we use that to measure their subjective reports on their psychological states. We then also ask them about their uh, food insecurity, you know, to what extent have you had difficulty getting food or, you know, et cetera. And we ask them about employment uh, income. Did you or somebody in your household lose employment income? Or are you worried about you or somebody in your household losing their employment income? And those are what we might call more objective measures of at least the economic uh, drivers of the strain. Now, it's also, of course, you know, we don't want to be saying that the only thing that causes people to feel strain is if they lose income. It's very possible, for example, that people could experience no hit to their income and not expect to experience a hit to their income, but 
the experience of living in this world at this time causes people to seek the comfort of religion. And we don't really have anything that would help us to get at that. The, you know, and that is obviously a, a shortcoming. And we probably could have designed uh, a set of questions that would have helped us get there. But what we thought was the questions about income were objective. And there's, um, so you're starting with an objective reality, which is, did you lose some income or not? And then you have the intermediate variable, which is how much stress you feel. And then the dependent variable, which is, you know, how much do you turn to religion? Now, of course, because this is an experimental study, this, um, the causal chain I just laid out for you does not appear as neatly in the data, and we should talk about that. But that's kind of how, why we focus so much on the objective. Let me um, chime in here. Um, so obviously we're interested in religiosity, and it was important for us to come up with a way to measure uh, religiosity. We didn't want to constrain ourselves to one particular uh, dimension of religion or religiosity, religious practice. So we had to sort of um, gauge uh, in the most appropriate way how people live religiosity, express their religiosities in a Muslim context. So we tried to tackle that in a number of ways uh, by essentially by creating an um, index of different components of religiosity that people have discussed uh, in the literature. So um, the most obvious examples uh, or elements, components of that is um, the daily prayers that Muslims um, are prescribed to pray five times a day uh, and reading the Quran. Um, these are the most obvious markers of religiosity and we've included them. We ask people, you know, uh, how much do you pray or how much um, do you read Quran? And we ask them to compare that to uh, uh, to the periods before the pandemic. So this is um, self-proclaimed levels of religiosity, a comparative uh, basis, which is, uh, which is uh, important for us. Uh, another way that we try to sort of uh, measure religiosity is a little bit more, I think, uh, more modern ways of, you know, uh, religiosity, which is reading religious books and following religious programming on TV in particular. So. Um, this is a little bit less direct, but people people view those as uh, elements um, of uh, religious uh, practice and religiosity. And lastly, because this is a pandemic and because there, there are lockdowns at various points in time, we wanted to measure how people were attending mosques and participating in more sort of communal elements of religiosity, mosque attendance, and participating in religious lessons, for example, or study circles. So we've brought all of those together to create an index. Um, um, and that I think worked pretty well. Yeah, and, and you know, one of, one of the interesting things, I mean, I guess we'll talk about the findings uh, in a minute, but you know, we did see a lot of people reporting increases in their religious behaviors, you know, praying more, reading more Quran, reading more religious texts. Of course, when you get to the communal aspects, you see a lot of um, people reporting that they're doing that much less. And that's, of course, a result of the lockdowns. And one thing I think we didn't explore, but will probably need to explore in future work is if I'm the kind of person who is used to going to the mosque, 
and now I can't. That is in itself a source of strain and stress. And, um, and so exploring that aspect, you know, the, the, the fact that some people, the pandemic actually prevented them from engaging in religion, uh, religious practice in, in the way that they are used to could actually be a source of, of stress. And we know that there are some people uh, and we actually have a question on this that we're we're analyzing, but we know that some people uh, believed that these lockdowns and the extent to which they locked down religious institutions were illegitimate, right? The, you know, we have a, a question where we uh, quote something that one of us, I think, read somewhere where some, you know, but we ask people how much they agree with the statement, instead of closing down the mosque, we need to open them so we can ask Allah for forgiveness. And, you know, that some people agree with that statement. And so, um, you know, there, there's there's many more complex ways of thinking about the relationship between the pandemic and religious behavior than the causal mechanism we're presenting presenting here. Um, it would be great to hear more about your findings. Who did you find reported a change in religious behavior, and in what countries? That's great. Let me let me just give a, a, a broad overview and then maybe Qadr and, and Peter can kind of uh, dive in, particularly to the country level uh, di dimension variation, which is really fascinating. But uh, basically what we found was that the um, people who said that they expected to or had experienced household income loss were uh, a much more uh, strained um, and be much more likely to uh, events uh, or to say that they were engaged in more religious behavior as a result of the pandemic. So just it's important to say about that religiosity question we ask you, are you praying now more than you did before the pandemic? Are you reading Quran now more than be you did before the pandemic, et cetera? And, you know, the, 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 so, People who lost income feel more strained. People who lost income also are reporting more religious behavior. The question then is, what's the relationship between the strain and the religious behavior? And here's where the finding is really interesting and consistent, frankly, with those decades of, of older theorizing, because we found that among the people, conditional on job loss or income loss, if you say, uh, we're, I'm praying more and I'm engaging in more religious behaviors. You lost your job, right? So of those people who lost their jobs, the ones who are engaged in more religious behaviors actually report feeling much less stressed, worried, nervous than the ones who lost their jobs and aren't engaged in the religious behaviors. And so again, you know, the way we set it up is to be able to make a credible causal claim that it's the, you know, because you're engaged in the religious behavior, that functions to psychologically protect you against the stress of losing income. Um, that's why we ask not how much you pray and then just measure how much these people are praying compared to others. But we say, are you praying more than before? And it's the people who say, I'm praying more than before, who conditional on job loss actually feel less stressed than those who aren't praying or reading Quran more than before. So that was a really... Uh, interesting finding consistent with, again, that, you know, that Durkheimian argument, that uh, argument from Nietzsche, et cetera, and also with some of the uh, more recent studies that are being conducted in Germany, and I think there was one in Italy. Um, but 
that's, you know, if we pool the entire sample and we're treating an in individual Indonesian as an, the same as an individual Turk, when we start to disaggregate by country, find different uh, different effects by country. Maybe Qadr can chime in. Turkey is, of course, as always, uh, the the outlier here. Go ahead, sir. Yes. Uh, well, looking at the data, what we're seeing is Turkey um, is, on average, doesn't see a lot of change in terms of religious, uh, in terms of religiosity. You know, um, and we don't really see any increase in. Uh, religious practice as um, attested by the respondents themselves. One reason we can figure why that's the case is it's because, you know, even going before um, the pandemic, Turkey has a overall a more secular society. You know, um, Turks are more um, sort of friendly with secularism as a personal choice, uh, as well as, you know, as a form of governance. And that affects how they respond to different kinds of um, you know, uh, adversities, including this pandemic. So in that regard, I think um, this is this is one reason why we are seeing a difference in Turkey. Another, um, yeah, we haven't tested this in particular, but one thing I can speculate is uh, right now there is a, an Islamist government in, in, um, in Turkey in power. And uh, from qualitative, you know, um, um, sort of evidence, um, we know that uh, many people have actually set distance between religion and themselves uh, because of the practices, because of the policies of the existing government that's been in power for about two days, almost two decades now. So this is this this could be another mechanism uh, that affects how people respond to um, the pandemic and it, the adversities that they face as a result of that, rather than turning to religion. Um, they find um, solace and, you know, uh, reprieving in different arenas. You know, that, that last point that Qadr makes is a really uh, fascinating one because, you know, again, you know, I've studied Islamism, Qadr studied Islamism, Peter studied Islamism, and we always think, okay, to what extent is Islamism being driven by attachment to Islam? You know, Islamism, that's actually a bad term, but, you know, let's say voting for parties that say I'm going to implement the Sharia, for example, or voting for parties that make at their core an argument about Islamic identity. And so we always think of the religious attachment as, again, a causal factor. And what others pointing out is, well, in Turkey, you have a political party that, you know, frames itself as being a pious party connected to Islam. Qadr called it an Islamist party, although I'll note Qadr wrote an amazing book about this party in which he, he calls it slightly different from an Islamist party. But um, um, but nonetheless, Islamic identity is central to the AK party. Um, and what Qadr is pointing out is that what we're starting to see is actually when you have a prominent political party that makes religion its core identity, that other citizens who may not like this party may express that dissatisfaction with that party by actually pulling away from religion. There's a study by uh, David Campbell uh, from Notre Dame and his co-authors where he's finding this in the United States. People are actually, some people are becoming less willing to express themselves as uh, evangelical Christians because they see the Republican party, a party that they're not on board with, uh, uh, adopting that identity. So this is also um, 
you know, Qadr's explanation of why the Turkish data is, is um, uh, not necessarily congruous or not singing the same tune as the other data uh, may be driven by this interesting phenomenon in which religion isn't just affecting politics, but politics is affecting people's practice of religion. And one brief point I would add, uh, Miriam, in relation to your question about our findings, it's kind of about the significance of our findings. Obviously, we already spoke to the ways in which it seems to confirm a long-standing sociological thesis or dictum about the role of the social role of religion under conditions of adversity. Um, when the pandemic broke out, you know, there was this little speculative scramble among scholars working in all fields, like what does the pandemic say about the things I work on, right? And so within religious studies, there was this mini debate that broke out purely speculatively at that point um, about what the impact of the pandemic on religiosity broadly would be. Now, wrong to say that it was wholly speculative because some of these intervening in the debate, some of the people involved in it were drawing on data from previous cases of large-scale adversity. But the two sides of this debate, you know, one basically uh, doubled down on that long-standing thesis that we've already laid out for you about, you know, people turning to religion um, as a source of security under conditions of adversity. The other side of the debate argued that we would see something like a quote unquote religious recession. The idea being that as people are um, less able to participate in particularly communal religious activities, they will begin to feel uh, less in touch with their religion, that the pandemic uh, by its very nature would just lead people to focus on other issues and religion would kind of fall by the wayside. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting and useful about our data is that it actually allows us to, to play a role in starting to actually answer that question with some, some serious empirics. And it's obviously clear where we fall on that question, right? We're, we're, we're confirming the, the, the longstanding thesis. Yeah. You know, there's another um, set of uh, findings from recent survey work in the Arab world, so not the Muslim world. And, you know, as the, you know, outgoing director of the uh, program on Islamic studies at Harvard, I do know the difference. But, um, um, you know, studies of the Arab world, recent studies of the Arab world found that or argued that religiosity in the Arab world is actually declining. And, uh, you know, this was based on some very high quality data from the Arab barometer, comparing a couple of waves and finding that in the most recent wave of the Arab barometer, people are more likely to say that religion isn't important to them. And, um, you know, I think all of us in some ways, the three of us, you know, felt that that was that was certainly surprising because, you know, this is a part of the world in which religion, I think, is quite central. I mean, I've in my own life made the argument that sometimes we think religion is way too central. We make these kinds of quote unquote orientalist arguments where we view the average Arab as a kind of, you know, to use Sadiq al-Azm's term, homo Islamicus, who just, you know, acts in a uh, deterministic way. But nonetheless, religion is important there. And so we were, we found this finding to be a little bit uh, surprising. And I think Part of the explanation for it is Qadr's explanation that how much of this is driven by the fact that people don't want to be associated with the quote unquote Islamist parties that they associate with, uh, you know, the failures of the Arab Spring, or maybe that they're afraid of associating themselves with because of fear of uh, state response. 
But one of the things I think we, uh, this data and these findings that we've uh, begun to uncover suggest is that that quote unquote trend to the extent that it's real uh, may not be you know long for this world. It may in fact be that because there is this shock and frankly, the world is full of shocks. You know, this is a part of the world that, you know, even at this late date in human history suffers from considerable insecurity along a number of dimensions, even before the pandemic. It may be that, you know, we shouldn't make too much of this quote unquote secular trend towards secularism. Um, and that in fact, you know, the drivers pushing people to continue to look for solutions in religion are important. And, you know, one thing we've hinted at, but haven't really talked about fully is, you know, what what is the causal mechanism that we've identified that links strain to religiosity is a psychological one, right? We've said people feel stressed out, they feel worried, they feel apathetic, so they seek comfort in the divine. There is, of course, a much more quotidian mechanism by which you might expect strain to lead to more religious behavior and practice, but doesn't work through psychology. It would be something like, uh, I lost my job, I lost my health care, and the only organizations in society, because the states are utter failures, the only organizations in society that can offer me that are the organic religious charities that are so in evidence. And so I seek that material sucker from those organizations. And then as a result, I'm now embedded in religious networks and start to act religiously. And then that would also help us, as Qadr said, understand why Turkey is a little bit different. Because Turkey is a very strong state, because actually in Turkey you don't need to really rely on um, uh, religious charitable networks for your healthcare, then this mechanism wouldn't necessarily operate. We don't find a lot of very clear evidence for this in the data either way, but it's nonetheless there's a lot of different mechanisms that we might expect to operate to, to produce the broad association that we observe in the data. Yeah, I'm curious to kind of know uh, more about this, um, uh, I guess the effect of political developments in, um, in individual religiosity. You mentioned the Arab Spring, the AK party in Turkey. Um, and especially because historically governments have played such an important role in um, public religious life in Muslim societies and implementing Islamic law and also upholding certain social norms. So um, I guess I'm wondering, uh, do you think these developments mean that uh, religiosity is just changing and manifesting itself differently? That's a, that's a great question. You know, and in, in, and in other words, you know, if I can let me try to reframe your question as a sharp critique of what we're saying. Um, so um, because it sounds like what you're saying is, well, look, guys, you're measuring um, changes in specific religious behaviors and you're framing that as change in religiosity. But in fact, religiosity could be constant throughout this period and it's just expressing itself in different ways. Would that that's sort of the the argument? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's you know, that's a really a uh, powerful critique that you know I would need to think about. What do do? Let me call on my smarter friends. I I absolutely think you're onto something there, Miriam, because I think that we've been actually watching a broader sociological shift in Muslim religiosity 
over the years. Um, and it, it, this is linked to kind of a broader trend towards individualization in some cases that, that people are um, increasingly interested in religion um, more for uh, the idea that religion is a source of ethics, a source of spirituality, a, a way of self-care, if I can put it that way, that would mean that they're not necessarily going to articulate that religiosity in ways that would show up on the religiosity index that we're using in this data. Um, I think other forms that it takes um, are, um, for example, the idea of the sort of trend towards Islam as a lifestyle, right? That, that, and, and this is sort of in line with theories about the increased neoliberalization of societies globally, right? That increasingly we are disciplined as human subjects to um, focus more on, you know, how we live our lives, you know, how do we spend our leisure time? How do we shop? These kinds of things, right? So, so that you look for certain kinds of religious affiliation to be expressed in domains other than where you would conventionally expect to find religion, right? I'm going to shop Islamically. I'm going to consume Islamically. Um, I'm going to listen to certain kinds of music, gravitate towards certain kinds of content. Um, you know, that, that does, is, is it, it's an expression of a certain kind of Muslim self, but it's not one that would necessarily show up uh, using some of the conventional metrics that we usually deploy when trying to gauge levels of religiosity. Yeah, can I can I actually? This is that's a f fantastic and really important point, uh, Peter. And you know, just thinking about how would we test Miriam's conjecture? So the idea, you know, that Miriam is offering is that you know the level of religiosity, the level of spirituality, the you know, is not actually changing in response to the pandemic. And what we're picking up is some change in religious behaviors that could be driven by something else. I think one way in which you could begin to inch towards an answer is to leverage some of the other questions in the day in the data. So one question, for example, that we have is, you know, how important is God in your life? And we've asked it in this survey, but we've also asked it in the prior survey that Qadr led in 2017. And we have to do a little bit of waiting because the samples aren't quite the same. But what we, if we're right, what we should find is more people now say God is important in their life than said prior to the pandemic. If we find, in fact, that those levels are the same, then absolutely these changes in religious practice may not be capturing a change in underlying attachment to religion. I suspect they will. You know, this, you know, there's something about folk wisdom. You know, that remember that line we've all heard, there are no atheists in foxholes. You know, that wasn't something that was come up uh, that, that a, a counterintuitive a contrarian political scientist came up with. Like that captures something true about the human experience. And so, you know, I, my, my, my feeling is like when your data actually says something that your grandmother or grandfather would have said, then, you know, you would tend to have, tend to, tend to think, okay, there's probably something to this, but Miriam, you've offered what we would call a robustness check that we need to uh, undertake in order to make sure that we're, we're on the right path. Um, if I can add something um, to the discussion. So, uh, over the course of the last century, what we're seeing is Islamist groups and parties have successfully, to a large degree, politicized religion um, throughout the Muslim world. 
And this has continued over the course of you know, um, the 20th century and into the 21st century, especially starting with the uh, foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, first and foremost. Uh, but what we're seeing, and we found this in our 2017 study, we conducted an experiment uh, in that study. We found that there is actually a strong um, thinking or sentiment that, you know, not all religion should be politicized. You know, there are, in, in some ways, you know, people do um, like their religion, like their faith, uh, but they don't necessarily want it to be politicized in different ways, you know, maybe not always. And what we found in that experiment in the 2017 survey was that people actually uh, one, what discounted, um, you know, preachers, for example, that were associated, affiliated with the Brotherhood or other Islamist groups um, uh, in the region. And that was a strong indication that maybe, you know, we need to be a little bit more nuanced in terms of what religion means and, uh, in, you know, to, to people maybe in different contexts. So uh, coming back to the pandemic, I think uh, to the degree to which religion uh, has been polarized or religious responses have been polarized uh, in the pandemic with government policies or otherwise is going to be a factor, you know, um, um, moving forward as to how re people react to religion and, you know, shape their religiosities. If religion, you know, in a similar way to the United States, you know, at, at, a, at one point in time back in, um, last spring, uh, we all remember that um, church attendance was, a, was an important issue for a lot of Christians. Um, in similar way, now with um, some lockdowns going on in some of these countries still, that is becoming a thorny issue for some people. So that can create some pushback um, you know, based on the identity of the government, whether this is Islamist or not. So uh, I think that's gonna play, um, play a major role moving forward you know, and tell us how long lasting these shifts in religiosity can become. You know, I, just to just to 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 comment on something uh, Qadir just said. I mean, you know, I think one thing that the th probably has frustrated the three of us is how much some scholars of an older generation, nobody of our generation, um, but you know, I'm talking you know, sort of mid-century, would conflate the kind of everyday religiosity you observe in the Muslim world with a particular political program. So they, you'd show up in Cairo and you'd see that there's a bunch of mosques and you'd say, well, this is why people are voting for the Muslim Brotherhood when they get the chance. Clearly, these people have a passion for Islam. And, you know, I think, you know, we could accept the argument that Muslims have a passion for their religion, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to express itself politically. One, one of the things we said in our uh uh, um, uh, associated um, monkey cage Washington Post blog article about this was because the pandemic is resulting in this kind of shift to religiosity, will this have a political effect? And I think we wouldn't push that point too strongly because, you know, it's not a, a direct uh, um, a deterministic relationship where people are suddenly more religious and now they're going to be voting more for uh, Islamic political parties. The other point that Qadr made, frankly, that I thought was really important and needs to be underlined, it does take us a little bit away from the pandemic, but it's just a really important observation about 
religion and politics and how we seem to study it differently in the Muslim world than we do in the West. You know, if we had a, a Muslim country president who went and stood in a major square and held aloft a copy of the Quran, uh, there would be breathless uh, articles about how this was the theocratic and there would be these articles would not just appear in the newspapers, there would be scholarly articles uh, trying to understand why people are so theocratic, etc. Whereas here in this country, we had a president who actually did that and nobody said he's a Christian fundamentalist. Um, if you think about just how important certain religious markers are when for political candidates, you know, Barack Hussein Obama had to show that he was a churchgoer in order to attract the votes of certain constituents. And yet we never say, and nor should we say that, oh, clearly Christian fundamentalism is super strong in uh, the West. So you can have religion in politics without having politics be about religion. And I do think that's an important, uh, an important uh, uh, question, an important thing for us to recognize. And it's a way, frankly, one of the slight upsides of this moment with uh, the president, and I know the former president. I know we're getting beyond the pandemic. Is just how I think it's caused many of our uh, colleagues who study politics in in non-Muslim contexts to understand that many of the things that they observe in the Muslim world as being uh, uh, anomalous are actually quite ordinary, and you see them uh, in a lot of different uh, different contexts. Uh, and that's why, just to come back to something Peter said, that's why we're really gratified also that there is this research in the Western countries on the impact of COVID-19 on Christian religiosity that's actually finding something very similar to what we're finding. Maybe maybe this, this question might tie into that. Um, during your research, what what role of technology did you see sort of, uh, you know, helping people connect, whether it's through, you know, as you mentioned, religious programs or education or perhaps virtual uh, Juma prayers or something like that? You know, I mean, I think the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has brought much of the world online. Uh, and and what has what impact has that had on the religiosity? And to sort of you know as a bit of a follow up too, um, has this somehow changed the 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 dynamic of the conversation around religion as it pertains to national borders? I mean, one of the interesting things I thought about the the COVID nineteen pandemic is that in, in many countries it became you know. Uh, we talk about vaccine nationalism, right? I mean, is there anything like that that you've uh, seen in your in, in your research? So there are a couple of questions we asked that that did get at issues relating to technology and use of technology um, uh, during the pandemic. Um, one of them asked about the extent to which people are watching more religious television shows, for example. You know, are you more engaged with religious media? Um, and we also asked people, um, we just asked a general question uh, to all respondents about, you know, when they're seeking guidance in matters of religion, what, what kinds of sources do they turn to? You know, do you ask friends or family? Do you go to your local imam? Do you listen to national religious leaders, maybe affiliated with official state religious institutions? Do you kind of, you know, consult Sheikh Google and get on the internet? Or, you know, are, are you, you know, going through social media? Um, and this was a particularly interesting question to me because 
very early in my career, like mid to late 90s, some of my earliest publications were about the impact of the internet on religious authority in, in, in the Muslim world. Um, you know, and this was sort of still in the period when people were kind of um, breathlessly excited about the democratize, supposedly democratizing effect of the internet, that right, all of the incumbent um, stayed ossified authority figures in Islam or you know, any, any tradition of knowledge you might care to mention, we're now going to be swept away by these dy dynamic, empowered voices that are using technology to make themselves heard. And, you know, there was sparks of that going on, but frankly, the incumbent guys managed to get online pretty quickly too and figure out how to use it to maintain their, their position. There was something that came up in our data now that um, and, and this is less directly related to the pandemic, but it's interesting to me just because this is a question I've been tracking over time. Um, through some work that I did with the Pew Research Center in the mid 2000s, we, we, we put into the Pew Global Attitudes Survey in 2006, um, virtually the identical question that we used in, in our uh, survey now about where people turn for guidance in matters of religion. And the clear pattern then was that people turn first and foremost either to friends and family or to the local imam or, or mosque. Um, and what we see in our data now, although there is, there is some variation between countries, is that um, there's, there's certainly, compared to that Pew data, a clear shift towards a greater reliance on the internet and social media. Now, some of that is gonna be explained by the fact that internet penetration rates in some of these countries have increased markedly since 2006. But just from what I've seen in some of the more ethnographic research that I've done over the years is that you know, there absolutely is this kind of increased um, reliance on uh, media and technology as a source of uh, religious knowledge. Now, you know, you asked about the kind of uh, border crossing transnational effects here. And, you know, we, we, we had some questions on the survey that ask about the relevance of certain religious figures um, uh, and how people view them in different countries. Some of the figures in question are specific to, you know, particular countries where you would only know about them if you happen to be based in that country. But so some of them are sort of transnational global um, Muslim figures. And to me, there are some interesting, frankly, policy relevant findings in this in the data we have when I think back on when I served in the Obama administration at the State Department, and there was this big push um, that 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 was done on the issue of countering violent extremism. Um, CVE, as it was called, in the aftermath of ISIS. Um, and part of that was this idea, it was to some extent a return to early post 9-11 discussions about, you know, we need to find the moderate Muslims. Um, and we need to find the, the, the shuyukh, who can provide something like a theological antidote to ISIS. Like ISIS is pumping all these bad messages out through the communication networks. So we need to find, you know, alternative Muslim authority figures who can counteract that with, you know, more positive and moderate messages. And certain fairly well-known 
religious authority figures like, uh, you know, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya became caught up in this and, you know, was, was lifted up by the US and trotted around the world to various CVE summits where he gave these speeches. And, you know, there was at some level among some of my colleagues in the State Department an idea that, you know, if this guy who's this global Muslim authority figure speaks, then, you know, somehow young people will say, oh, okay, sorry, I didn't realize that ISIS is totally wrong. So, you know, if Sheikh bin Baya says it, then it must be fine. But, you know, our data shows very clearly that, you know, uh, the vast majority of Egypt's population has never heard of him. And, and so the idea that this is going to be a credible, impactful voice on these kinds of issues, I think, is, is somewhat questionable. You know, can I just ask a, a question, basically, of my, my co-authors? You know, so so we're we're finding, obviously, that there is an uptake, uh, uptick, rather, in religious uh, behavior, at least. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll do the... A robustness check suggested by uh, Miriam Qadhimi, but I suspect will that's a fairly stable finding. What do we say to those, or how would we respond to those who who would then jump from that to uh, an assumption that support for or appetite for quote unquote more extreme Islamic politics will follow because of increased religiosity. Yeah, pe people are becoming more religious. They're also more strained and probably more dissatisfied with their governments because their governments are not doing a good job. And so uh, a hypothesis would be that we would consequently see more of this quote, to use a, a, a term we don't like, uh, Islamic fundamentalism or Islamic extremism or use whatever term du jour you want. I mean, my senses that that's not the right inference to make, but I know we're going to get that question. I, two quick um, observations. The first one is um, this question assumes, um, or idea hypothesis assumes that religiosity is the major driving force behind, you know, uh, Islamist politics. And it's not necessarily the case. It's not always the case. Sometimes it can be, sometimes there can be overlap between personal religiosity and uh, sort of political perspective, view, ideological orientation, but that, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, um, it depends on what kind of religiosity we're talking about. I mean, there are different kinds of religiosity. Some of them relate to practice. Some of them relate to more, I think, sort of the, the place of religion in one's, I think, mental makeup, so to speak, uh, or belief structure, what kind of, you know, um, uh, religious, religious ideology, not political ideology, but religious ideology one embraces, I think, also informs uh, political preferences. Secondly, um, a point that I made earlier, you know, the extent to which religion has become a polarizing issue, has become a tentious issue uh, during the pandemic, you know, uh, and that's going to inform people's political preferences on Islam uh, moving forward once again. So I, I think another thing that the question assumes, right, is that m more religion is bad, right? The, the subtext here being more religion when it comes to Muslims is bad, right? Because right? I think this is also caught up in some of the same Orientalist tropes that we've already referenced earlier. So to, to me, um, 
you know, I would push back against the idea that more religion necessarily means that people hold increasingly extreme religious views, right? One could become more religious in the sense of spending more time reading religious texts, spending more time praying, spending more time consuming and engaging with religious material, um, spend more time in quote unquote religious ways while still maintaining uh, a, a form of religiosity that that is very kind of mainstream, if I can put it that way, right? Just because you become more religious doesn't necessarily mean that you become more exclusivist or rigid in your religious views. So, you know, in order to answer that question, I, I would think that we would need to be able to have data that suggests that there's um, that th there are observable shifts in the nature and form of religiosity. Um, in a more exclusivist direction yeah. to, to be able to kind of answer that sort of question. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that early literature, obviously, Peter and Qadr, you guys are very well schooled in it, of that tried to explain that earlier wave of quote unquote Islamic militancy. So I'm thinking of Saadeddin Ibrahim, the great Egyptian sociologist who wrote a very important article in the International Journal of Middle East Studies in the 1980s. And this paradigm that we're actually hearkening back to, this Durkheimian paradigm that draws this connection between some social shock and, um, you know, religiosity. I mean, that's what Saadeddin Ibrahim invokes. And that's what, I don't know how explicit he is actually about invoking it. So if I'm wrong about that, please don't uh, be upset with me. There, there, are, there are flavors of it, certainly. Yeah, in absolutely. Well-known article. Of it. Yeah. And so then the question, be, you know, it's always urbanization. And uh, as a result, this creates a psychological distress and they resolve it by hearkening back to a particularly rigid form of Islam. So that's certainly going to be, I think, a hypothesis that we're going to have to contend with, even though I think we're we're sort of on the same page. And I think where we would, what we could reach towards, and this is sort of inspired by your comment just now, Peter, you know, uh, Miriam and Harry, there was a great study done by uh, Dr. Amani Jamal at Princeton, who's actually a, a co-author of mine. And uh, one of her students who's a great scholar at Notre Dame, Michael Hoffman, where they use some of their survey data to look at the religious correlates of participation in democratic protests during the Arab Spring. And they found, in fact, that people who are more steeped in reading the Quran were much more likely to engage in the costly collective action to bring about democracy that we know of as the Arab Spring. So that's an illustration of a religious behavior actually being correlated with, an, with a political behavior that I think we would all tend to valorize. And so maybe, you know, reaching towards that and uncovering a little bit uh, how maybe the heightened attention to religion, at least in some people, makes you think more about justice and social justice in ways that I think are world improving rather than world shattering. Thank you. So I think we've we've talked about this, but I'm wondering if you have anything more to add about um, what uh, the long-term impacts uh, you think there may be of increased religiosity um, after the pandemic or in the new normal? I mean, I think the puzzle for us or the task for us for, for this next step is to think about the political implications of it. So does the increased religiosity 
result in some change in popular preferences, not necessarily making them prefer Islamist parties or making them prefer violence. You know, that's, you don't have to go that far, but you could say, well, if people are becoming more religious, do they now, are they now more likely to support particular social policies, for example? Um, you know, might they be more interested now in redistribution than they might have been uh, at, at an earlier stage? And so I think that might, that might be one set of implications, at least political implications, that would emerge from, uh, from this finding. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still wondering to what extent this is going to be an enduring phenomenon. Right, in that I, again, this is sort of a call for the follow-up study that would you know take place at T plus you know once we're well into the aftertime, sort of T plus six months, a year from the end of the pandemic. You know, we we rerun this, and do we see evidence that the behavioral shifts that we pick up on in this survey are still there, or do we see people reverting to you know the to, to previous patterns of behavior? So how, how is this project, I'm gonna sort of uh, kind of ask the professorial academic question, you know, about how this project has informed your other research or maybe changed uh, your approach or some of your perspectives uh, on some of the questions. Maybe Kader, you, you can. Um, sure. Um... It's a great question. Um, thank you. Um, I mean, this is um, right, you know, what I study, what I um, examine in my own research, you know, um, going back to my um, studies on Islam's politics, um, you know, the change, the shifts in Islamist ideology uh, in several countries in the, uh, in the Middle East. And currently I'm working on a comparative um, analysis, um, um, a book manuscript on, Islamist parties and um, Catholic parties. Uh, and um, I tend to see things in comparative perspectives. So I think what we're doing here is something that's gonna co contribute to the literature in an important way. And that is, you know, how do people's religious practices um, and ideas and beliefs change in response to, uh, I think, objective challenges that can be, you know, uh, sort of um, catastrophe, so to speak, uh, uh, in, in terms of their health or, or economically at a personal level. So, and this is going to give us important, I think, information to maybe put to rest um, sort of century long debates about um, religiosity's response um, um, to major uh, changes, stressing events in human history. So in that sense, I think, going forward, um, I'm very interested in seeing how this plays out in cross-national, cross-religious uh, um, context. Yeah, I, I might just add that, you know, because your question, Harry, was how has this changed your, you know, re research agenda? And I think, you know, just the collaboration with Qadr and Peter has really opened me up much more to this basic question of thinking about re religion as a a caused thing and what are the drivers of of religious 
uh, behavior? What are the political drivers? What are the, the sort of uh, social and structural and environmental and environmental drivers as well. And then frankly, you know, you know, like Qadr, I've studied Islamism and I've always reacted to as, you know, what Peter described as that kind of orientalist argument that, you know, oh, people are voting for Islamists or people are engaging in behavior that we think of as Islamists because of religion. And so that always made me want to show, in fact, that the motivations of people in this part of the world are very diverse and aren't just religious, but that can tend towards making an error where you say, actually, religion doesn't matter at all. And so finding a, a place where we as scholars of the Muslim world both resist the temptation to reduce everything about that world to religion, but nonetheless recognize the importance of religion in some of the social and political phenomena we uh, understand. I think this this research has been, for me, at least part of a journey towards trying to find that happy medium. And of course, you can have no better partners in that endeavor than these two gentlemen. You know, I, I think that if you told me at the outset of this work that the first piece we would publish out of it is kind of about the question of whether there appears to be a relationship between people's experience of adversity and insecurity and increased religiosity, I wouldn't have thought that, that was the first piece we did just because I was interested in kind of far more ground level behavioral questions about you know, ways people were doing religion differently because of the pandemic. But I'm glad that we were able to kind of get at some of those larger questions. You know, as someone who continues to study Islamist groups and the forces that shape their changing social, social and political fortunes in different countries, I think the piece of this that's most interesting to me to watch and that I've been, been led to focus on more because of this work is less the question of, oh, people are expressing greater interest in religion. Does that mean they'll vote for Islamist parties? It's more the side of me and the side of the literature on contemporary Islamism that, that highlights the ways in which Islamist movements and groups have been very good at leveraging social precarity as a mechanism to build constituencies for themselves. And if we imagine that the pandemic is likely to be a source of enduring precarity, precarities of various sorts, whether we're talking about basic livelihood issues, insecurity, unemployment, health, um, and Islamists have a track record of being responsive to and having the capacity to provide uh, basic social services, sometimes in cases where the state is not able to, um, and leveraging that into increased you know, political success, I'll be watching some of that. Against a backdrop, of course, where when we think of classic cases like the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, you know, the, 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 the level of the, you know, uh, of, of oppression that that movement faces right now means that that sort of response is less available to them than it was, you know, at the heyday of their work in that vein in the 1980s and 1990s. But there are other settings where I think Islamists will have the ability to respond to uh, this catastrophe in some of those ways. And it'll be interesting to see how that correlates with their changing political fortunes going forward. So how can listeners learn more about this study and follow your work? 
Um, we're currently working on a long format report um, that we hope to finish, publish by the end of the summer, and we will have a number of events to publicize um, our major findings. And this will go beyond just the question of religiosity, but more issues related to religion um, and the pandemic, and we'll tackle many more um, important issues that people, um, at least in the academia and policy world, um, uh, are wondering about. And also we are currently working on an academic um, article that is based on our publication uh, in Monkey Cage, um, looking at the more, looking more sort of um, specifically about the causal mechanisms at work in terms of how the pandemic affects religiosity in the Muslim world. And we will be publishing um, these, um, the report um, jointly uh, with other institutions and hold events in all three institutions. Yeah, and, and th that article that people uh, can look at is in the Washington Post political science blog, The Monkey Cage, called, uh, I think it's called, Will the Pandemic Spark a Religious Revival in the Muslim World? Um, it came out in April. Um, and so if people can't wait, uh, they can, can start there, but we'll, we'll have more products to release soon. To learn more about their work, you can follow Qadir Yildrim on Twitter at AK Yildrim and Peter Mandeville at P. Mandeville. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for your engagement with our podcast in its first academic year. We hope you've enjoyed our episodes and will continue to follow the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies Program at Harvard University on Twitter at Harvard Islamic. We'd also like to give a special thanks to our guest today and outgoing faculty director, Tariq Masood, who has led our program for the past three years and without whose leadership, encouragement, and support, this podcast would not exist. I'm Harry Bastramajia. I'm Mariam Kazmi, and this is the Harvard Islamica podcast. Thanks for listening.